I mean, you can walk into some churches and know, ugh, I ain't welcome here. I can tell I don't fit here. And, and that's a bad message. So I don't care what color or flavor you are, you, you fit here. I'm really glad, glad to see you. Some of us are pretty boring. You look good. Glad to have you around. And on a, you know, what, what is God saying to some of us? Uh, we have people here in their 20s, some people here over 50. And for all you that are 20, you'll get here. Hang on. Hang on for the ride. It's all tight and tucked in right now, but it'll sag and drag in a, in a few years too. You'll, you'll say, my gosh, where did 30 years go and where did the rest of me go? And then what are we doing right now? God may say it's time to stop doing and what are, what, what are we not doing? God might say, I want you to start doing. On a personal level, what's the vision God has for your life, for your work, and for your relationships? As a church, Summit Christian Center, what's our calling? Uh, what's our mission? Uh, how are we going to live in a materialistic American culture and yet cultivate generous hearts and spirits and see the release of resources for the kingdom of God? How are we going to set goals, measure our effectiveness, do our best, smartest planning that we're capable of, and at the same time, be open, trust, and pray to the surprises God might want to give us? And what are we going to do about the financial challenges in the next five years uh, based on our government and world economics? Well, it was that kind of a challenge that led Paul to write to the church at Philippi. It's in the letter of Philippians in your Bible. And you can read about the beginning of that church in Acts 16. It was a pitiful little group when it started. There was a woman named Lydia. She was a very influential, wealthy business entrepreneur. We never even hear about a husband, don't even know if she was married. But she was a seller of purple. Purple was the color of royalty, only the royal could wear it. It was expensive to get because it took a special plant to get extract to get the purple dye. I was looking at a biblical archaeology film the other night on one of the channels, and I saw for the first time why it was so darned expensive, because that color was hard to reproduce, and it was very valuable. So this woman had a great business. She was financially well off, and she heard Paul speak, and she gave her life to Jesus Christ, opened her palatial home to start the first church in Europe. She bankrolled the first church, this whole deal herself. And then there was a jailer. Paul and Silas went to Philippi. They preached God's Word. They caused an uproar. They were beaten illegitimately, thrown into jail. God sent an earthquake, then set all the prisoners free from their chains. The jailer is about to kill himself because he would be executed by Rome anyway. And then Paul says to him, hey, Acts 16, verse 28, don't harm yourself. We're not going to leave. Your life won't be at stake. I kind of, you'll forgive me, this is kind of the, one of those thoughts that just goes shoo, right across my mind. There were a lot of prisoners in the prison before Paul and Silas got thrown in there. I'd be, I'm back there chained to the wall, and Paul's up, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Nobody go. I'm thinking, who told you we? You know what I'm saying? I just thought, Paul's being very gracious here. We're not going to leave. I'm thinking, speak for yourself, Jewish young man. I'm out of here. But apparently, he had some impact, and they didn't leave. And he says, your life won't be at stake. And the jailer was so moved by this, because it was so out of the ordinary, he accepted Jesus, took Paul home, says, tell my, tell my family what you just told me. He did. They washed their wounds. They bandaged them up. 
And they all received Christ that night, and they all went out and got baptized at midnight. This is pretty serious stuff. That's a long way from Jerusalem. Philippi was the first church on the European continent. Think about that. Paul wasn't even actually planning on going there. He was trying to get into Asia, was having trouble, couldn't get there. God gave him a vision and a dream of a man saying, come over and help us in Macedonia. So he responded to that call, and it was a pretty tough area. Philippi was a Roman colony. Eighty-five percent of the inscriptions there are in Latin. The residents of Philippi were all citizens of Rome. They understood very much about power, wealth, and status. And believe me, they were drawn to those things in that culture. They had a smorgasbord approach to religion, however. They were very pluralistic. There were local gods that were worshipped. There were people involved in emperor worship. There were Roman gods, Greek gods, Egyptian gods, gods from Syria, and all over the place. So initially, it's just this one little pitiful church standing alone on an entire continent, and then one day this little church is formed, and it grows. Paul goes away for several years, and then one day his letter is sent to that church in Philippi. Now, we, we say turn to the book of Philippians, but it's actually a letter. It's called an epistle. An epistle is not a wife of an apostle. It's a letter. It's, it's his letter. So, he, he writes to this church, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. In almost every letter that Paul writes, he starts out saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he lays out his credentials. But he doesn't do it here because he wants to teach people about servanthood. He's going to model a kind of partnership in the gospel. So in Philippians 1, verse 1 and 2, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers, those are the elders, and the deacons, grace and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives them this prayer in verse 9 and verse 10. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what's best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So Paul says to them, I want you guys to discern the best in your life, your family, your work, your faith, your character, your relationships, and as a church community. I don't want you to settle for okay. I want you to thrive. I want you to grow. I want you to flourish, because when God creates a living organism, His will for it is to thrive and to grow. No parent ever takes their child to a pediatrician and ask the question, how can I make my child grow? No, we know that if a child is healthy, they will grow. So we will always ask the question, why isn't my child growing if we notice a delay, right? Nobody says, how can I make the kid grow? What's keeping me? What's keeping my child from growing? Those who work in a hospital or nursery know that sometimes a baby will be born go into decline for no discernible reason, sometimes they die. And doctors and nurses will write on that child's chart three letters, F-T-T, failure to thrive. Those are sad, sad letters. And that's not God's plan for you, and it's not God's plan for His church, failure to thrive. I know people like that. You know people like that. I certainly know churches like that, but I know it is not God's will 
He says in John 15, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. God wants you to grow, wants you to flourish, wants you to prosper, wants you to, to increase over time. If God put life in you, He expects you to grow if you're healthy. Now, we saw in the introduction of this book, this letter, that Paul crafts the introduction. He's modeling servanthood for these people who live in a part of the world where servanthood ain't a very high profession. And there's a lot of inducement to pursue wealth and power and status and fame. It could be America. And Paul writes this letter about the possibility of life beyond that treadmill of anxiety and stress. So I want to focus on two gifts that God gives to this church at Philippi and that He gives to us as well. And here they are. First, He gives them a mission, something to do, something great and glorious to achieve. And second, He gives them a promise, something to look forward to. Business guru Peter Drucker says that when a group of people band together around a mission, they better always ask themselves, what business are we in? Because people forget. When the railroads ran this country, they thought they were in the railroad business. When the airplane was invented and brought to a place of maturity, it nearly destroyed the railroad because they thought they were in a railroad business and forgot they were in the transportation business. And anything that will move freight or mail or people is transportation. It's not one style. They forgot. They lost their market share. So, what business are we in as a church? Let's look at those two gifts. First, our mission. How would we answer if somebody were to ask us that question? What business are we in? Uh, Philippians 1, verse 3 and 5 says, I thank my God every time I remember you in my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day to this day. So Paul says we are all partners in the gospel. The word gospel has really been freaked out, messed up, junked up, and it's been made religious. Uh, uh, phrases like, well, they're gospel singers, or he's a gospel preacher. That conjures up pictures in my mind, because I've been around a long time, about big hair, polyester suits, and manipulative messages. Or if somebody says, I love gospel music, they're referring to a particular style. So you've, we've lost the meaning of gospel. But in Paul's day, it was never, never a religious word. It just meant good news. Gospel is good news. It is not extently owned by somebody in a particular group. It wasn't even religious. So when they had good news about anything, it was gospel, good news. I've heard people say uh, they made a statement about something going on. They said, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Everybody knew what that meant. And the thing about good news is it spreads. Oh, does it spread? When a great new restaurant opens up with great food, word gets around. There's a buzz about it. People tell everybody, you got to try this place out. Man, it's great. We went there the other night. When a great movie hits the screen, there's a buzz about it. And friends tell friends, you got to go see this movie. You got, I wish you'd do that about church. You got to go, you got to hear this. If Nordstrom's were ever to have a $1 sale, nobody would be here when the doors open at 10 o'clock because good news would spread all over the city. 
And this is the best news ever, Paul said. This is Jesus' news. The news is that God is active in the person of Jesus Christ, that he became a real human being, that he lived and taught and died on a cross, paid the price for everybody's sin, was resurrected from the dead for the forgiveness of our sins and the redemption of the world and the creation of this little community called the church. And now there's hope for the poor, help for the sick, and liberty for those oppressed. This is the best news ever. It's called Jesus News, and it spreads like good news does. It couldn't be stopped. It just kept on spreading. So that gospel had to be a whole lot different than what we call the gospel today, which keeps people by the millions out of church. You know, the political agendas have hijacked the church. Uh, Secular groups, political parties, race, nationalism, all kinds of bigotry has hijacked the church. Issues have hijacked the church. But Paul says, we're in the good news business. Ain't the bad news. I remember a guy I met a couple of years ago here. He said, I just want you to know something. I'm not very religious. I don't go to church much. I'm dating that girl that does go here. That's why I'm here. So see, girls, even pretty, works for the gospel in many ways. But he said, I just want you to know every time I come and I leave, I always leave feeling better than when I came. That's because it's good news, my friend. It's not bad news. It's good news on your worst stinking day. So we exist not primarily to hold services or run programs. Our mission is to help people meet, love, and follow this man, Christ Jesus. That's why we're here. This is clear Scripture. This isn't obscure. If the church doesn't understand its mission, it won't thrive. Jesus said, go into the whole world and preach the good news to everybody, everywhere. He didn't say, go and make everybody Republican or Democrat or Tea Party. He didn't say, go into the world and get everybody to agree to to, uh, picket this, boycott that, or advocate this. He says, go tell them the good news that Christ lived, Christ died, He rose from the dead, and if you'll receive Him, He'll give you eternal life. It wasn't on what I do. It's not on how I behave. It's on what He did for me on a cross. It's good news. The best news, well, what do I have to do? Well, if you watch TV, you can't agree with this. You can't disagree with this. You got to do this, and you got to believe that, and you got to do this. And I'm thinking, then I need to die on the cross. Why did He die for me if I can do this myself? I can't do anything to help myself. I'm dead in sin. I'm dead. What can a dead man do? Just lay there. But he says, I'll let you accept me, and I'll give you eternal life. And it won't be based on how you perform. It's based on how I performed. I'm going to give you a gift. Tell everybody that. Tell a Buddhist that. Tell a Jewish man that. Tell an agnostic, an atheist. Tell everybody that. Tell religious people that. It's good news. So we are not a political group. Jesus didn't tell me to start one. He didn't do it in Rome, and Rome occupied his nation. He never did that. He says, go tell them the good news. The biggest church in Colorado was over 15,000 active people, and the pastor of that church, this is five years ago, Led was politically active. He was in that big uh, moral majority, right deal, leading against, they built the whole church on the political agenda against same-sex marriage. And the whole church was primarily white, primarily Republican. And then the big scandal hit. He was caught in a homosexual affair with a guy in another city in that state, and this had been going on for years. So here he is up there representing Jesus, the church, on what God's against, while he himself is, a, is, is captive to this, and it made everybody look stupid and just destroyed the church. The church was not set up 
to be the KGB agent of the world or the judge of this world. No, no, no. Jesus is the judge. We are to proclaim good news. I can't fix you. Only God can fix you. My wife can't change me. Only God can change me. And I'm, my job is to proclaim good news. We got people sitting in here. God knows what condition they're in. But I want you to hear good news. It is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. And, and I thought, here this guy is representing the church, standing up, hijacking it on a political agenda when he himself needs the same help that fornicating singles need in a heterosexual relationship. Why you pick on one? Churches are filled with fornicating singles and adulterous married couples, and yet we want to pick on homosexuals. I'm thinking, they're the least of my problems. Oh, come on. I'm trying to make you think. Morality, only God can give me morality and make my heart want to do a right thing. Only God can do it. That's all I'm saying. You say, well, I, sometimes we fail. That's why the good news. Jesus died. He's covered me. Thank Jesus He's covered me. We fail. We fail in so many areas. You say, well, I just can't live that. No, heck no, you can't. That's why Jesus said, I'm going to give you good news. I already did live it. Now, I want to do a better job. I want to be a better man. I want to be a better person. But I don't care if you preach on TV, if you lead a political group or not, you're going to fail. And you've got some area in your life that isn't quite yet perfected. And there's no condemnation because it's good news. I wasn't justified by my performance this year. I was justified by His work on the cross. I got a full pardon. I am redeemed. Now, I want to be a better person. Only God can help me on the inside become that person. But not one day of my life am I made righteous, justified by anything I have done except accept what Jesus did for me on the cross. And so every church, you walk in, and you can tell whether people are accepted. Well, I think it's a black church. Well, I think it's a white church. Well, I think this is a Hispanic church. Well, this is a Korean church. How about a Jesus church? Where everybody comes in and says, it's cool. I feel good. Look at the staff. Look at the board. Look at the directors. Look at the stage. Look at the people. It's multicolored. Hello. You can preach it and not have it. We got it. And I love it. And we are better because we are such a homogenical mess of people. If two of us are identical, one of us isn't necessary. God loves diversity. It's really cool. I need you. You need me. And together we can make some kind of a difference. But I think we forget our mission. I, I believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. But this church isn't built on an issue. It's not built on the rapture. It's not built on the millennium. It's not built on Israel rebuilding a temple. None of that will save you. None of that will justify you. Not a bit. The main thing is the good news. Are you bringing people to faith in Christ? And if you don't do that, failure to thrive, you're irrelevant. You've missed the whole project. You've missed the whole mission. I mean, I, I've been to those churches. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a pole dancer. I don't care if you're still living with somebody. Jesus met a woman. He said, you know, baby, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. You, you're trying to quench something inside with water. I've got water, and if you'll drink it, you'll never thirst again. I don't even know if the woman got married, but Jesus didn't deal with the issue. You know, baby, you need to get married. Now, we could say, yeah, she should, but I'm showing you Jesus didn't go there. Jesus said, you got an unmet need, and I can fill it. I can, I can fix that heart and that hunger that's in you. Now, if you want complicated theology, I was raised in it. 
I'll go one-on-one -on -one with you in a second. And I'll be out there right after the search, okay? I'm ready for you. Don't even think about it. But I'm trying to tell you, I was really misled about how we've lost the simplicity of a gospel and good news. This is for everybody. And there are people that come in here messed up, all kinds of, I want them to feel like they're welcome and they're loved. You got a problem? Hey, we all got problems. All God children got problems because we're all sinners. We've all fallen. And we're broken, and we need God to fix us. But I want you to know that because you walk in, I, I remember once in our church in a big fundamentalist church in the South years ago, a girl came in in a sundress. She had a dragon tattoo on her shoulder, and I remember hearing women talk, oh, my God. I thought, if that girl could see girls today, she'd, she'd think that little girl was a virgin of the White Nile or River or whatever. The, the, I don't know. That's just kind of how people are. They judge, they judge, they judge, and you're not like us. I, I, I want you to feel like, that's cool, man. I felt comfortable. I felt welcome. I felt like I was in people of all kinds and walks of life, uh, and it was good for me. It was good news. So Jesus, why did they say about him, his worst enemies were the religious leaders who says, look at that guy. He's hanging out and eating and drinking with publicans, extortioners, and sinners. He had good news for them. They had good news for them. If we lose that, we become irrelevant as a church. We just become a machine. Let me prove it to you. On Nantucket Island in Massachusetts, there's a little museum. You can Google and see this. It was devoted to an organization started centuries ago. In those days, travel by sea was risky and dangerous because of the frequent storms in the Atlantic, which is still true, and the rocky coast of Massachusetts. And many people lost their lives just a mile or so off the coast. So a group of volunteers went into the life-saving business. They banded together and formed what was then called the Humane Society. They built little huts that dotted the coast all along Nantucket. They had people watching the sea all the time, and when a ship would go down in a storm, the word would go out. People would drop everything and devote themselves to saving every life they could. They did it for no money, no recognition. They did it simply because they valued human life. And to remind them how serious they were about this mission, to remind them what was at stake, this was their motto. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. <laughs> Pretty sobering words, huh? I mean, you wouldn't think that would be a very effective recruiting slogan. Got to go out, don't got to come back. And so people would risk everything, even their lives, to save people they had never met. But over time, like things do, it changed. After a while, the United States Coast Guard was started. It began to take over the task. And for a while, the Coast Guard and the Life-Saving Society worked side by side. But finally, another idea carried the day. Let the professionals do it. They're better trained. They even get paid to do it. So the volunteers stopped manning the little huts, stopped searching the coastline for sinking ships. They stopped sending out teams to rescue drowning human beings. And here's the funny thing. They couldn't bring themselves to disband. The Life Saving Society, Google this, still meets to this day. They have a dinner every once in a while in Boston. They hand out awards for stuff. They enjoy each other's company. They still have a good time. They still exist. They're just not in the life saving business anymore. It doesn't happen in a month or two or a year, but over time, a church forgets. It's in the life-saving business. 
and they usually don't disband right away at least. People meet, enjoy each other's company. They have services. They run programs. We have in our city and in every major city of America churches over 100 years old. The buildings are relatively large, cold, well endowed by elderly, wealthy members who have been there for years. So because they have an endowment fund, they can keep going, even though they're not focused on helping anybody, only on themselves. They don't look out. They look in. They don't look at the coast anymore. They just look at themselves. I remember my grandfather used to say, Ricky, the church is the only business that can go out of business and still stay in business. Boy, that's right. And so they don't send teams out to look for people who are going down. They're not scouring neighborhoods, their offices, their schools to see if anybody needs to be saved. And they forget that Jesus put this rescue mission into the hands of volunteers. And they hold services week after week. They have buildings, budgets. They take offerings. They hire staff. They have programs. They're just not in the life-saving business anymore. And it's just a matter of time. It will happen. The day comes when you can write over the door of that church, F-T-T, failure to thrive. And I hope we all understand, Jesus is still looking for people who are willing to go into the life-saving business. He's looking for people in church communities where people are willing to band together and say, I'll bring whatever gifts I have, and we'll create a hut of refuge right here. Now, we don't save people. God does that. But He does invite us to partner with Him in that mission. And I'll tell you what that means for Summit. As long as there's anybody in this city, this state, this region around us who does not know Jesus, as long as there's anybody who needs some hope, who stands alone, who needs help, who needs fellowship, we're not done. We have a mission. We are on a mission from God. You treat everybody with respect, with dignity, with love and honor that walks into this place. My God, we ought to be at least as good as the Beatles. All you need is love. Na, 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 na. All you need is love. Love. Love is all. And Paul says, love never fails. My God, can't we give people not a political agenda, but said, Jerry, nice to meet you. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Happy New Year. It's going to be the best ever. I can make people feel comfortable and welcome and genuinely about it. I don't know, first of all, well, are you homosexual? Are you heterosexual? Are you totally messed up? Are you living with somebody? Are you on drugs? Do you sell drugs? I don't know. That's not my first agenda. If I don't get your heart, I'm never going to get you any truth. And before you become a, a corrector, you better become a friend. And I'll let you in my life. A friend loves at all times. Jesus befriended people who didn't deserve it, and it just opened the door to their heart to bring good news in there. So I don't know whose last day it'll be in here. I don't know one shot at somebody that could change their life. I met a woman the other day, introduced her teenage daughter to me, and says, you were in this city uh, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, and this is the product. You prayed for me. We couldn't have children. The doctor said we couldn't have children, and look at here. We got one. You prayed for us, and here she is, and now she's leaving on a mission trip. I thought, wow, you just never know the impact you can have. I, I think about that all the time. So if I know Jesus, I'm on a mission from God no matter what my career is. It's not a casual thing. I mean, we got to at least be as good as the Blues Brothers. Remember? We're on a mission from God.
well, these wannabes weren't, but we really are. This is a serious thing. God's planned an eternal destiny for all of us. And you and I have been made partners of this gospel as believers. When we come together and say, whatever gifts I have, even if it doesn't look like much, I'll bring to this fellowship. I'll have a heart for this world. I'll bring to this fellowship whatever I have. I have a heart for the poor. I'll pray for people going down. I'll share my life and my faith with people no matter what condition they're in. And Paul gave his life to that. And millions of people throughout the history of the world have given their lives to that. We're in the good news business. Don't forget it. That's our only business. We exist to help people meet, love, and follow Jesus. And I've seen so many people who because we did accept them, who later their hearts were changed and their whole lives were transformed. But if you become nothing but a judgmental, issue-oriented church, you will ultimately not thrive. And Satan will probably let you keep going because you damage more people than you help. And you form a bad image about what the church is supposed to be and what a Christian really is. It's amazing to me. What do you believe about the rapture? What do you believe about the millennium? You just can't believe it. It's like, what the flip has that got to do with being redeemed, being justified, forgiven, and have nowhere in the Bible do I have to agree with you on the rapture, on a temple rebuilt in Israel, on a millennium. Most of you couldn't spell millennium right the first time, and you would actually pick a church based on a, a point of doctrine that cannot be proven conclusively, and which there is so much debate. I think Satan's very clever. He's getting you to chase the non-important and ignore the urgent and the major issue of our mission. I'm a Spirit-filled believer. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit, but I'm not building this church on tongues, and I'm not building it on prophecy, and I'm not building it on prosperity, and I'm not building it on healing. Those are all part of a package, but they are not the main purpose for our church. We're on a mission. And if somebody is sick, we'll pray for them. Somebody's broke and busted and disgusted, we want to show them. God wants you to prosper. Here's how. God wants you to have a good marriage, raise good kids. Here's how. We want to help you. But our main purpose is to bring good news to people everywhere. Your silence is deafening today. <laughs> Number two, here's the last one. We have a mission and we have a promise. And this is the promise applied to you and me as individuals and for us as a church fellowship. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. I wonder if anybody in this room this morning has ever started a good work and not finished it. If you belong to a health club like I do, you always notice the beginning of January, it's packed. Can't get a parking place with new people. People on treadmills that haven't treadmilled for a long time. People wearing spandex who should never wear spandex. And the gym gets filled with all kinds of people. But by the next December, the membership of fitness clubs all over America are indexed with people who started a good work, but faded out before the finish line and don't go anymore. Let's do a little mass confession this morning, okay? How many of you have ever started a good work, like begun a diet, made a list of home repairs you were going to do, really going to do them, going to clean out the garage, promise you're going to organize your time better? You made a commitment to be a better student of God's Word or a commitment to tithe or to pray. How many of you ever started a good work and then procrastinated and didn't finish it? Just raise your hand all over the place. Look at that. How many of you need more time to think about it? <laughs> okay. Here's the good news. 
God has never done that, ever. God has never done that. Whatever God starts, God finishes. Our God is a finisher. Father, I have finished the work you gave me to do. And he tells you, whatever I begin in you, I will complete it. I don't care what the doctor says. I don't care what the economy says. I don't care what your circumstances say. I will fulfill it. If I have to back up the sun 10 degrees, open the womb of a 90-year-old woman, if I have to feed you with ravens, I will do what I said in order to fulfill what I started and finish it in you. 2,000 years ago, God began a good work in this little town called Philippi. We're looking at it today. And he starts with a businesswoman, not a businessman, guys, a businesswoman, a leading entrepreneur, and she's going to bankroll the whole deal, and a jailer, and a couple of escaped convicts. That's the basic foundation of the first church in Europe. Wow. Ain't much. You may be here, and God put you here to capitalize a vision, business entrepreneur. I saw where Red McCombs has given over $100 million to the University of Texas. How about somebody capitalized like that who's also on a mission from God to capitalize the kingdom? Wow. Do we even think that way in church? Not typically, but we should. Lydia made a big difference, so it took somebody with a home, it took somebody with resources, but it took somebody to preach. It takes somebody to sing. It takes somebody to run the audiovisual equipment. It takes all kinds of people to partner together to make a team, to make a church, to make a family, to make a business run successfully. Everybody, everybody's not a toe or a hand or an eye. We all have a part to play. And ask God to help you to play the role He wants you to play in this deal. Now, 2,000 years later, you think about what's happened since Philippi. Westminster Cathedral, Notre Dame, Sistine Chapel, universities, the history of Western civilization in Europe for the last 2,000 years. And you think about what's happened. We're on the other side of it, but it all started with this little motley crew in a little town of Philippi 2,000 years ago. How do you explain that? Because he who began a good work is faithful to finish it. 30 years ago in San Antonio, Texas, Summit Christian Center started. Just a few people, a rented hotel room. They met, they worshiped, they worked, they gave, they sacrificed, and they prayed. Today we have a few thousand people, 68 acres of hill country land, opportunities to reach even more people and make a difference in our world. Why is that possible? Because he who began a good work in us is faithful. It's been our privilege to travel, to send people to far corners of the world, to build orphanages, classrooms, a pharmacy, and help people know Christ. We have given over a million dollars in our lifetime to agencies representing the poor, AIDS victims, hospices, orphanages, Sam's Shelter, Abused Women's Shelter, Habitat for Humanity, Church Under the Bridge, Child Protective Services, Child Hunger Fund, and the list goes on and on. I think we'll adopt a new motto for missions in 2014. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. That's fun, huh? Probably not a good recruiting tool, but it goes on around here all the time. Marriages put back together, people who are stuck in some addictive behavior go into recovery. 
Lost people find Christ, their lives are transformed, and no wonder, Paul says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because we're partnering together with God in the good news business. I hope you're a partner. You know, I look around at what God's done, and there, I, I run with some big dogs, people much bigger, much better than me or us. But then I get, I get perspective. I didn't even start till I was 44. Holy cow, Tonto, 44, that late? Most of my friends started in their 20s. Late start, late bloomer, political rock and roll guy. This is quite amazing to think that we start in a hotel room and we've come this far and we have such big opportunities, and yeah, I wish I had more gifts, I wish I had started early, I wish I had been this, or wish I had been that, but maybe I'm nothing else to encourage anybody. God can use that dude and us, He can use anybody. I've got a shot at making a difference in the world. It just shows you our God's faithful. If He starts it, He's going to complete the work. There's no other explanation for it. He started it. Now, if you go out and start something and God didn't start it, I guarantee you it won't finish. I've seen, I've never seen more startup churches in my life. And you know God didn't start all that. Now, that's a split off of a split off of a split. Well, joy to the world. That's, I'm sure that's blessed. But I want to encourage you to become a partner. You know, in all organizations and businesses, there are three kinds of relationships. First, there's customers. The customer attitude is meet my expectation. Give me what I'm looking for. Make me happy. I'm on the cruise. I want to be sure it's the food I like, make sure the temperature is good in my room. I'm a consumer. I'm a customer. Then there are employees. They generally fulfill their obligations. But if it's not their job or their job description, there's a pretty good chance it ain't going to happen. You ever hear anybody say, it's not my job? I'd be rich for the times I have heard people say that to me. Cindy and I were in Austin at a place I'd never been, Ikea furniture store, Ikea, I-K-E-A, huge, beyond huge. And we were picking out some pieces of furniture. So you'd write down, they give you a slip and a pencil, and you write the model number, and you write what it is and the cost and all that. And I thought, okay, they're going to get all this up front and easy. So finally, after a couple of hours of doing that, this massive place, we see the checkout area. So we go to the checkout area and hand them the list. And the lady hands it back. She says, oh, no, you have to go get it. I said, what? Moi? I have to go get it? Mattresses? Bed? Dresser? I have to go get it? She said, well, yeah, that's how we keep it so cheap. You got to go get it. So, I mean, we go back in this warehouse. It's walled high. And can you imagine the weight of some of this stuff? And I saw a pregnant lady by herself, and I thought, oh, lady, I need to tell you right now, this is not good news. You are not going to be able to do this. And we found one guy. He said, I'm the only guy working in the warehouse. I thought, joy to the world. This is going to be a good day. The only guy. And he says, there are people ahead of you. And I thought, what are we going to do? And so you got to find a a, a cart big as this, this stand right here with wheels on it because you're going to be putting beds and slats and frames and mattresses, all that stuff on there. And the way it took two of them. And Cindy found some guy, he had on the yellow shirt, so we thought he works here. He, 
and he had a clipboard, and he was very friendly, and, he was, and he, she stopped him, and she said, there's nobody working in the warehouse. We, we don't know how to get this stuff. We need, we need a cart, and there's nobody to help you. And this guy said, I don't work in this department. I work in design. I'm a designer. But let me see if I can get you a cart. He went way in the back, got two of these big suckers, looked like 18-wheelers. And then he says, let me see your list. Took our list, and off for an hour we went, getting stuff, lifting it together, putting it on there, and reminding me that, you know, I'm not real good at this, and I don't unload. I'm not real strong. I said, well, I work out at super slow. I'm strong. You just show me where this sucker is, and we'll get it together. I'll be picking it up. And he did. And we finally got it loaded and put on there. And I just reached in my pocket and pulled out a nice hunk of money and put it in his hands. And I says, thank you for doing what's not your job and making my day. I love you. And if you lose this job, come to Summit. I'll hire you. (laughs) Not my job. Well, if you're a partner, as he was in a company, it is your job now because nobody else is around. You pick it up, you clean it up, you serve. You answer a question, yeah, that's not your main job, but when you partner, it is. And then that means the third group is a partner. A partner says, I want to help with anything around here. I'll go, I'll risk, I'll come, I'll serve, I'll love, I'll give, I'm in. God, just say the word. And if God planted you here at Summit, I pray that will happen to you that God will call you out of the customer role, out of an employee role, and become a partner with us in the good news. It's kind of strange. Our human nature draws all of us to be customers, and there's just not a lot of joy in being a customer. You know, when you ask a kid, a little guy or a little gal, what they want to be when they grow up, I've never heard one of them say, I want to be a great customer. That's my ambition in life. But where the joy ends up is with people who say, look, I want to have an open hand before my God with my life, my time, my energy, my talent, my money. I want to partner in the good news business, however little or much I have to offer. And when a spiritual family does that, when people band together and build a hut of refuge and decide, hey, Our main business is life-saving business. You have no idea where that may lead and how many people can be impacted. It started in Philippi, and a whole continent changed. Let me challenge every one of us. Pray this prayer from Philippians. God, help my love to abound more and more and more with knowledge and depth of insight so I can discern the best. God, help me not settle for okay. Help us to discern the very best. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.